Welcome to the New Books Network. Prayer is the one human activity that becomes possible when we realize we're no good at it. You know, so if I tried piano or tap dance lessons and realized that was a disaster, I'd give up. But prayer becomes possible when I realize that I'm not in control, that I can't somehow just conjure up God's presence or fabricate an experience of God, that all I can do is really sit in this vigilant expectation. How can you pray like a mystic? How should you evangelize in a pluralistic age? Bishop Donald Hying talks these questions over with us on Almost Good Catholics. Welcome to Almost Good Catholics, a conversation about theology and apologetics. I'm your host, Chris Odinitz, and I get to ask interesting people who've thought a lot about the big questions to share their conclusions, to explain what we know, how we know it, why we think we know it. I hope this dialogue may help us approach the truth and have a really great time doing it. If you'd like to join the conversation, please email almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. Our guest today is Bishop Donald Hying. He's the bishop of the Diocese of Madison, Wisconsin, and has been serving there since 2019. Previously, Bishop Hying served as the bishop of the Diocese of Gary and as an auxiliary bishop at the Archdiocese of Milwaukee and Wisconsin. All told, he's been a priest since 1989 and spent five years in the 1990s in the Dominican Republic. And it's always a pleasure to hear you, Bishop, speaking Spanish in your YouTube videos. Uh, Today, I'd like to ask the bishop about mysticism and also about evangelization. It's a great honor to have you on the show, Bishop Hying. It's so great to be with you, Chris. And mysticism is a topic that many Catholics probably are not even familiar with, and yet all of us have experiences of God. So it's a very timely topic for us as we seek uh, the depths of God and his presence in our lives. Wonderful. Uh, Before I ask you about that, would you like to share a joke with our audience? I will. It's somewhat um, appropriate in terms of our theme. It's a monastic joke, and maybe our listeners have heard it before, but there's a man who joins a contemplative cloistered monastery that's so strict, he can only say two words every 10 years to the <laughs> abbot. So after 10 years, he comes into the abbot's office and he says, bed's hard and leave. <laughs> You've probably heard this before. No, I no. don't know. Okay. So another 10 years goes by. This man's been in the monastery 20 years, goes in, can say his two words to the abbot. He says, food's bad and leave. <laughs> Another 10 years goes by. So this man has been in the monastery for 30 years, goes into the abbot's office, and his two words now for these next 10 years are, I quit. (laughs) And the abbot says, it doesn't surprise me any. You've been complaining ever since you got here. (laughs) That's it. That's the joke. Yeah, fair enough. Um, Okay, so uh, let me ask you, what is Catholic mysticism? And I I wonder if you think it's changed over the centuries or if we've just been talking about it differently. And the reason I'm asking you it this way is because last week, Professor Carlos Ayer from Yale told me that of St. Teresa of Avila's mysticism was very personal and physical in the person of Jesus. She saw him and embodied God. While Father Greg Boyle, a Jesuit in L.A., and also some other mystics like Jim Finley or Richard Rohr, are much more comfortable with a God who is pretty much without characteristics, often using Buddhist language to try to express this universal love as a, as a force or an energy and, and that kind of thing. Um, what do you say? I would say there's a specificity to Christian mysticism because of the specificity of Christianity. 
is so Christianity is the only world religion that believes that the universal, mysterious, all-powerful, invisible God humbled himself to become one of his own creatures fully in human form. So for us as Christians, obviously, Jesus Christ is both the Son of God, but also fully human, that he is one divine person with two natures, one divine nature and one human nature, you know, this perfect union of God and humanity in the person of Christ. So because of that whole incarnational dimension, um, because God enters into human history in the person of his son in our human nature, um, things are forever changed for us. So it means that our experience of God is going to be both transcendent and imminent. And those are two big fancy words. You know, transcendence means God is so beyond us that we can never fully define him, possess him, contain him, capture him. He, he He's beyond everything that we can possibly think or imagine. And yet in Christ, he's imminent, which means he's fully joined with us. And in, in the intimacy of the sacraments, we believe in sanctifying grace, you know, that the blessed Trinity comes to dwell within our soul through grace. You know, as Jesus says in John's gospel, those who love me and keep my words, we will come to that person. We will come to that person and make our dwelling with that person. So somebody put it very well that God is so beyond us, we can never grasp him or fully possess him. God is so close to us, we can never fully avoid him. So there's that kind of push and pull. There's that, um, lure where God reveals himself and then it seems that God becomes obscure. So Christian mysticism, I think, really holds both of those dimensions of God, his transcendence and his imminence in a very healthy balance and indeed tension. So I think mystics like Teresa of Avila would say, as Christians, we always must be grounded in our spiritual life in the humanity of Jesus, because in Jesus, we have you know, the, the full definition of who God is. God has revealed himself to us very clearly and fully in the person of Christ. And as John of the Cross would say, to desire more revelation than what's been given in Christ is to really be on a fruitless quest. Because in Jesus, God has said everything that he's going to say. And yet clearly, there's a whole transcendent dimension to Christian mysticism as well. And you know, we think of people like St. Bonaventure, um, St. John of the Cross, even Teresa of Avila, you know, she's grounded in the humanity of Christ. And yet she had remarkable experiences of contemplation. In our own age, we think of, you know, Thomas Merton. And I think the mystics get it right when they say that God's light is so bright that it often appears to our senses as darkness, or that God's presence is so profound it will appear to our senses as absence. So really the mystical journey is taking us through a purification where we gradually let go of our images of God, our puny definitions of who God is and stand before the mystery of God in prayer. So mysticism would simply be our conviction that here in this life, in our humanity, we can have um, experiences of God that transform us, that fill us, that allow us to live in the very life of the Trinity. So, so to get from where I am 
in my daily life where I my awareness is cluttered with all the silly things of, of daily life. I'm, you know, I'm, uh, I don't know, watching, looking at my phone and watching the news and listening to, to podcasts and trying to, you know, um, get to work and change lanes and choose my clothes and all these little things. Do the mystics have a way where we stop, go quietly, mm-hmm. spend more time in, in prayer so that we can start to see that this darkness is light or this absence is presence? Mm-hmm. What, how do they do it? Yeah, I think Jim Jim Finley, you know, who was a novice at Gethsemane Abbey under Thomas Merton, wrote a great book called The Awakening Call, and it came out in the 1980s. I heard him speak at a retreat that I attended back in 1990, but he would assert, I think rightfully so, that you know, those that are really called to a deeper life of prayer will be restless and discontent until they give themselves to it, that there's a, a sense of... Uh, there's a deep impulse of desire that I, I need to pray. It's not simply an obligation. It's not something that I force myself to do, but that there's a deep human need within me to pray and, and to be in stillness. So I, I think he would say if, if one feels called to the contemplative life or, or to a meditative life, then we find a way in our daily activity to set aside time for silence, for solitude, where we simply sit in the presence of God and invite him to enter in and to pray within us. So yeah, I think it does come down to um, really committing to a, a specific time, a specific place every day where even if it's just for 15 minutes, I'm going to give myself to the Lord. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because we are, we all have that monkey mind where every time I sit down to try to do something, I think of five other things I I'm, I want to do. Right? Uh, do you have a, a, a particular practice that you, that you do yourself or that you recommend to novices? Yeah, several things I'd say. One is, and we all struggle with distractions in prayer. And you know, you sit down, you try to pray. Distractions come in. You push them away. You pray a little more. More distractions come in. And pretty soon I find myself sitting there thinking about the fact that I'm sitting there trying to pray. It's like a hall of mirrors almost. And it's in those moments where the moment demands a deep surrender to God in my spiritual poverty. Mm -hmm. I always would say that prayer is the one human activity that becomes possible when we realize we're no good at it. So if Mm -hmm. I tried piano or tap dance lessons and realized that was a disaster, I'd give up. But prayer becomes possible when I realize that I'm not in control, that I can't somehow just conjure up God's presence or fabricate an experience of God, that all I can do is really sit in this vigilant expectation that if I enter into silence and solitude, um, God will certainly do his part, even if it's on a level beyond feeling and thought, even if it seems as if nothing is going on. And I think that's when I realize my spiritual poverty. And I can say to God, you know, God, my hands are too short to reach you. My mind is too small to continue. You know, you're going to have to pray in me. It reminds me of what St. Paul says in Romans when he says, you know, we do not know how to pray as we ought. So we call on the Holy Spirit to, to make groanings you know, within us, you know, the Holy Spirit to pray within us. So that's one thing. The other, I think, is really just to move into um, some practice of Lexio Divina, where 
we pick a passage from the scriptures, perhaps it's reading one of the gospels sequentially, but just to meditate on a, a little piece of scripture and allow that to be digested into our spirit, our heart, our mind, and see where that takes us in prayer. So certainly at the beginning, we need something for our mind to focus on. And that's really what meditation or our mental prayer is about. And it, it's, it allows us to really grow in our, our habit of, of the discipline of prayer and, and the practice of it. The other thing, you know, in his introduction to the devout life, St. Francis de Sales lays out some um, methodologies of how to spend an hour a day in prayer. And he has these defined meditations. But, but part of it is just realizing our fundamental identity as children of God, asking the Holy Spirit to be within us, to enter into this period of silence, to meditate on our our end, you know, that this life is short, brief, and that God is our, our ultimate um, desire. Yeah, and there's no need to... Uh... Do you have a freedom of anxiety that that you're not worried you're doing it wrong and you're not disappointed in your poor first baby steps as a as somebody who's trying to do something prayerful and mystical? Uh, yeah, there's. Yeah. I mean, I'm, personally speaking, I always feel like I'm not praying well enough. I, I think it's part of our our human nature and our human ad- inadequacy. But when you look at it from God's side, how pleased God must be when we even make a faltering attempt to enter into a deeper relationship with the Lord, how, how much he must be gratified by that and how clearly he wants to rush in with grace to bless that and to make it abundant. So it's really, I think our faith, our, our prayer life is 80% desire. You know, if our heart desires the Lord, then he will show us the way. But reading solid spiritual books, you know, having a spiritual director, if that's possible, I know it's probably a luxury for many people. And there's so many online resources as well. So, you know, Teresa of Avila would say if her choice was between a learned spiritual director or a holy one, she would pick the learned one, you know, that we need to be solidly grounded in, um, you know, the basics of our, our Catholic faith to, to stay rooted in, in the spiritual path. What is a spiritual director? So a spiritual director, um, sometimes it's a priest or a lay person. A spiritual director is someone that one would meet with on a regular basis and really just kind of lay out um, your prayer life, your moral life, uh, your life of growth in the faith. It's a person that you can discuss all of those things with from kind of a a spiritual faith perspective. Sometimes if it's a priest, people also use their spiritual director for confession as a confessor. So it's a spiritual companion in a way, but someone that's been at it probably longer than you, who has some wisdom and some experience of God Mm. and can just help you to continue to grow in prayer and in faith. Uh, my wife is a, a Protestant, and we we have often gone to Protestant churches in the past as well. And that's one thing I think Protestants do well is accompany each other in fellowship and sort of get mm-hmm. together during the week and have you know like accountability groups and things like that where they all check in. Uh, but but for us, you would think it would be like one senior person and one junior person in in a partnership. Yeah, I, I yeah. think so. But also think of the popularity of Bible study groups, uh-huh. prayer groups where. 
you know, there's a, a mutual discernment among members of a, a small group dynamic. And clearly, you know, some of that can be, uh, you can be led astray if a person's not well formed, but but there's a lot of wisdom and, and spiritual power in a lot of the small group dynamics within Catholic parishes. Yeah. Okay. And then um, I guess, is everything mysticism? I mean, is mysticism its own little province of, you know, our corner of the church? Or now that we look at it closely, do we realize that everything we do uh, is, is searching for that um, relational, transcendental awareness? Yeah, I would say it's, I'd be, t- I'd be hard pressed to want to say that it's everything because sometimes it feels like, well, if, if it's everything, then what exactly is it? So I'd say the sense that our whole reality is spiritual, you know, that God created us as his beloved children, that the ultimate reality is God and the relationship that will be sustained forever is our relationship with him. So in, in that sense, you know, everything in our life is orienting us towards God and can be a window that leads us into God's presence. But I also say that there's a specificity of mysticism that not everyone is called to. So I think mystics are those that are really called to a, a far deeper prayer life, a far deeper relationship with the Lord than what um, the average Catholic would be. And I don't mean that to sound elitist, but I think mm-hmm. there's certain... There's certain souls that God just wants a much more marked and profound intimacy with, it seems to me. Yeah. Is it a question of temperament or a question of vocation or who knows? Yeah, right. You know, it's like, is does everyone have the capacity to be a great mystic and some people just refuse it or are certain souls chosen? And that's a compelling question. You know, yeah. are, we're, we're all called to be mystics on some level, but there's certainly souls that have been just singled out by God's grace to um, really just go far deeper than the average person does. Okay. Well, I think you helped me a lot with this with this question. And I'd like to um, take up a second topic that's also of great interest to me, which is on an article you wrote almost exactly two years ago about the iconoclasts who tear down statues mm. uh, in our country. And, and not only of people like uh, Thomas Jefferson or you know George Washington or other founding fathers who were Virginians with slaves, but also St. Junipero Serra uh, here in, who's, who's been, whose statue was vandalized here in California is the, uh, um, so the, the apostle to California, who then uh, very pointedly in 2015, Pope Francis uh, canonized as mm-hmm. sort of a model of immigration, or if not immigration, at least evangelization. And this is, this is I, I'm um, myself a, a historian of early modern Spain and the Spanish Empire. And so mm-hmm. for me, this has always been an interesting figure. I wanted to ask you um, how you how you think we should think about our not only national history as Americans but also church uh, history mm-hmm. as as we're going forward and mentalities change and ethics change and ideas about how people should behave and what are the appropriate ways to evangelize our brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what do you think? It's a very exciting moment. Yeah, clearly, history is very complex, and as as you said, Chris. We read the past through the lens of the present, which in one way is unfair to the people or the events that we're studying because it's it's looked at through the lens of everything that's happened since then. But I, I think destroying statues um, limits our ability to appreciate and comprehend the complexity of history. 
So to acknowledge uh, the the checkered history of our country, you know, I think of our the, the grievous um, abuse of the native peoples, clearly the the terrible injustice and dehumanization of slavery are, are two great blots on our national character and culture. But does destroying statues of people who were slave owners, but does that do anything to heal that? Or rather by um, retaining statues of people, does it allow those statues to be teachable moments for us to, to realize you know, how we've progressed in certain values and our understanding of the dignity of the human person and just realizing the complexity of, of historical personages and, and situations. It seems to me just to obliterate history or to rewrite it a dozen injustice to the integrity, the complexity of, of individual people, as well as just historical circumstances. What's the correct way to practice the Great Commission and spread the gospel to all corners of the world mm-hmm. in one, at one point while respecting uh, people's self-determination and so on? Yeah, clearly, in the Great Commission, you know, Jesus sends forth those first followers as missionaries. So there's a fundamental missionary dimension to Christianity that we are sent forth to proclaim the gospel. And just yesterday, we celebrated the great feast of Pentecost when Holy Spirit imbues those first followers of Christ and sends them out. You know, so Jesus says, go preach the gospel to every creature, make disciples of all nations, baptize in the name of the Trinity, and, and off they go in the power of the Holy Spirit with great success, seemingly, when you read Acts of the Apostles. But the, the gospel is a proposal. It's churches or people in the church have erred when they made it an imposition. You know, Mm -hmm. forced conversion is a contradiction in terms. So God respects our freedom. And so therefore the church must respect uh, human freedom and the sanctuary of the human conscience as well. So we propose the gospel. We invite people to step into this life of communion in the church to embrace the gospel, but it can never be imposed because faith is a, a free ascent of the mind and the heart. So I think, you know, when we look at evangelization today, especially to other cultures or countries, there's a profound sense that God is already at work everywhere. You know, that there's a foundation laid for the gospel in terms of human development, but that, you know, that there's still a power and a truth to the gospel, which will purify every culture of its um, dimensions that, that need a humanization that indeed need um, transformation. So it's a profound, it's a stance of profound respect for every person and every culture. And yet also having the confidence and the charity to present the gospel to everyone, because that's the most loving thing we can do. Yeah. Um, and I, I once saw an old debate. I'll see if I can link the YouTube video to it. Uh, it was on the old program Firing Line with uh, Bill Buckley, you know, in the nineteen in the twentieth century. And the proposition was Junipero Serra, saint or sinner, and Buckley said, "Well, you know, every single saint is also a sinner first, mm-hmm. and unless you're the Virgin Mary, you're also a you're going to make mistakes, even mm-hmm. even on your path to, to sainthood. And you, um, as as a bishop, you're you're a pastor. You're unlike many of the people I talk to who get to have the luxury of saying theological things without having to put them into practice. This is your 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 job 
what is what is working for you in your in your um, pastoral ministry, and what have you learned in your years as a bishop and a priest? Yeah, I, I would say that all people are hungry for God. They may not know it's God that they're looking for, but everyone is looking for for love, for meaning, for purpose, for transcendence. They want to know that their life matters, that their their existence means something. So everyone has those same hungers of the heart. And so, you know, as a minister of the church, I'm privileged to be able to stand with people in some of the most moving, poignant, sorrowful, joyful, important moments of their lives and, and to speak God's word to them and to point them to God and to Jesus and the church and the gospel and mercy and compassion and vocation and grace. I mean, all those things that are are just so um, fundamentally important to our lives as humans and also as believers. Here in the Diocese of Madison, we inaugurated two years ago an evangelization initiative that we call to go make disciples. And it's not a two-year process. It's not a three-year plan. It's simply a way for us to move ever more purposefully into embracing the fundamental mission of the church, which is to proclaim the gospel. And part of that is we ourselves as leaders need to be renewed and transformed in the Holy Spirit. So it's kind of this ever-expanding dimension of um, inviting more people into the sense that they too are missionary disciples and who in their lives can they witness to and mentor and, and bring into a a fullness of communion with Christ in the church. So um, evangelization is really the mission of the church, and it, it's it's what we need to be doing right now, especially in the many dark places, the violent places in our culture. You know, we need light, we need peace, we need um, the upholding of human dignity, reconciliation, all of that. Yeah. How do we get from here to there? You wrote a, a beautiful letter, which I'll include in the link for our listeners, after the um, murders of the children at the at the school shooting and, and other recent incidents like that. How do we get from where we are now to where we need to be? Yeah, that's a, a complex question because you know our culture is just so fragmented. And I just think of you know, the breakdown of marriage, the breakdown of family breakdown of relationships, you know, that young people can just exist online in this virtual world and have very little connection to the actual people around them. So it's really a crisis, not only of community, but also of communion. Mm -hmm. It's a a crisis of the fundamental dehumanization of of the person, you know, beginning with ourselves, but then also if if we can't see ourselves in the the full richness of our, our human nature, we're not going to be able to see other people in that same light. So I think in the end, you know, people become objects. And when we objectify ourselves, we also objectify others. And in that context, then um, so so much evil is possible because we we no longer um, see ourselves and others as made in the image and likeness of God Mm -hmm. as having an inherent human dignity, you know, just the whole, um, building block of the culture of life. Yeah, I think that takes us back to Cain and Abel. Yeah, so it's really a crisis of relationship. Yeah. Crisis of relationship with God, with others, and with my truest self, which is what mysticism does. It plugs us into all of that. It's funny, I was at a funeral a couple of years ago, and there was a young person wearing a T-shirt that said, 
yes to relationship, no to religion. And I wanted to go up to the person and <laughs> tell them that the etymology of the word religion is relationship. So <laughs> you're a walking contradiction, right? Um, religion yeah. is relationship. And yet I think when people have bad experiences of religion or simply see it as, you know, this, this mammoth institution, that's not relational, um, you know, they don't make those connections, Yeah. but religion is all about relationship. You're restoring us to relationship with God in Christ or through the church. And that, that's what Catholicism is all about. Yeah. Or, you know, something might've happened to that kid that, um, turned, you know, upsetting me. I've had a bad catechism Bad, bad experience. Or he could just be wearing a slogan that he thought was right. provocative. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So tell, may I ask, we have a, you know, just a few minutes left. How did you choose to become a priest? How did you find your vocation? Tell us just a little bit about your life. Oh, that's no thanks for the question, Chris. I, I point to four um, influences in terms of my vocation. One would just be the, the faith example and prayer life of my parents who just lived a very deep spiritual life in a very quiet way, but a, a very transformative way. Number two, one of my brothers died of cancer when he was 10 years old and I was six. And I think that triggered a lot of, I think, fundamental questions and fears and anxieties in my short little life. And maybe it mm -hmm. drew me to look at the bigger questions earlier than most people. Thirdly, one of my brothers went to the seminary. He ended up leaving and getting married, but I think his vocation was to get me there because I'd go visit him as a little kid and just fell in love with the place. So, mm -hmm. and fourthly was the election of St. John Paul II as Pope. He oh, wow. became Pope when I was 15. And I just felt that everything he said and did was somehow personally directed to me. So in many ways, my um, vocation of the priesthood was really prompted by his example, his charisma, his faith. So it was those four components. So I was 25 when I was ordained a priest. In terms of Dominican Republic, I am a priest of the Milwaukee Archdiocese, and the Archdiocese has a sister relationship with a parish in the Dominican Republic, and they needed a priest. So I went. I didn't know any Spanish when I went. So first four months I spent in a language study program in the capital, which was very painful. I think if you want to <laughs> if you want to experience poverty, go live somewhere where you don't know the language, <laughs> where nobody knows English, because you feel stupid. People yeah. treat you like you're stupid. They talk louder as if someone <laughs> can help you understand. Um, but it was beautiful. We, our parish was 27 villages um, spread out over about 50 square miles, and in many ways, it was like living Acts of the Apostles. Our people were very materially poor. So my first year there, I felt as if I couldn't even see them because I was so blinded by their material poverty. But after about a year, I stopped seeing them as poor because I was so blinded by their spiritual beauty. Mm -hmm. So the poor have a lot to teach us about you know, human dignity, reliance on divine providence, generosity, uh, trust in the Lord, you know, loving people in the moment. Um, so, so many of those fundamental things that oftentimes in our complex uh culture here in the States get lost. Yeah, that's, uh, that's very beautiful. Uh, and then you have been tapped to be promoted and administer the, the church. Do you mourn the fact that you're being elevated and further away from, from your sheep? Or do you find that, no, you can actually do all the things that are very important mm -hmm. while also running a great organization? Yeah, I'd say the latter. I, 
I really see myself still as a parish priest, maybe yeah. just a bigger stage, you know. So I go out to our parishes and schools, have a lot of contact with folks, do do a lot of things in the diocese that help keep me connected. I do miss being just in one parish. I mean, there's a beauty to the intensification of those relationships and just being with that community for a number of years. But um, being a bishop is a beautiful opportunity just to serve and to preach and to help other people. A lot of what you do as a bishop is really kind of be a cheerleader. You know, you're always Mm -hmm. (laughs) encouraging, thanking, um, trying to re-energize people, um, you know, and I think in this current moment, people need encouragement and hope. Well, is there anything else that I didn't ask that you'd like to talk about or that you wish people knew? Yeah, I don't think so, Chris. I would just yeah. say, you know, in terms of mysticism and prayer, mm-hmm. just to give a encouragement to all of our listeners that no matter where you're at in prayer, uh, the Lord wants to be in this living, loving relationship with you now. And any time that we give to that relationship is going to be a great blessing in our life. And it's it fills a desire in God's heart, you know, that he wants us to love him, to speak with him, to be with him. So when we move from seeing prayer as kind of just this obligation, um, and we see it as this divine romance, it changes everything. Same with Mass. You know, when we stop seeing Mass as this yeah. obligation and we start seeing it as our way of living this romance with God, uh, then everything changes for us. Yeah. Do you think God ever loses patience with his children? Do you think he yes. ever has like, that's it, you're done? You... <laughs> um, we would say no, right? Until yeah. the final moment, uh, God always holds out hope for us. And that's the, the beauty of his love for us is that he He bears with us um, constantly and, and infinitely, no matter how many times we fail and fall and walk away. And that's the, the beauty of the gospel. Yeah, well, do you think there's the mechanics of hell? Like, is it just that people insist on sitting there because of their stubborn pride, as C.S. Lewis suggests? Or as uh, the Jesuit I talked to um, a couple of weeks ago said, well, there, there can't possibly be a hell. Or the more traditional view that, uh, I'm sorry, tough luck. Some people go this way. Some people go that way. No, I think we choose hell. So Catholicism has always taught that there's a possibility of hell. You know, we've never asserted that. Um, people are definitively there, that, that's God's judgment. But it's clear that God gives us freedom and that he respects the consequences and choices that we make. So we would hold out the possibility that a person in absolute freedom can fully reject God in such a definitive way that, that God respects that that choice and that decision. So obviously God's will is that no one be in hell, but um, because of freedom, we, we have the ability to choose. And that's really the drama of every human life. How is it going to turn out? Yeah. Or do you feel that there's a lot of um, unseen angels and, and demons and all kinds of ministers of grace or adversaries around us all the time and we're unaware of them? Or do you think that's just the way we have to put things into words to make them fit into our poor brains? I think there's a spiritual struggle, absolutely. And I think many people feel it intensely these days, you know, that there's there's tremendous forces of of sin and darkness that are at work. And I think when you look at the scriptures, you know, it, it's clear that um, there is a supernatural force of, of evil that wants to pull us away from God, already back to Genesis. And yet 
God is infinitely greater and stronger. And that's why in Christ, we have nothing to fear because he has conquered sin and death forever. And yet um, the evil one wants to divide, confuse, um, and pull us away from, from God. So there, there's a spiritual battle clearly at work, not only in our individual lives, but in, in terms of the unfolding of the, the history of the world as well. Yeah. Thank you so much, um, Bishop Hying, for your time today and your wisdom and your teachings. Well, thanks so much, Chris. It was a great honor to be on your show. And um, yeah. just appreciate all that you do to spread the faith and to help people find God and let God find them. Thank you. Would you would you say a blessing for our listeners and their families in our world? Absolutely. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, help us to fall ever more deeply in love with you through your Son, Jesus, who loved us unto the end, to the point of shedding his blood. May we realize the perfection of your love for us and our deepest identity as your children. Help us to live this faith, this relationship in our lives, and help us not to be afraid of mysticism, of prayer, of deep spiritual experience, for there your truth abides. Bless us, bless our listeners, and all of our special intentions as we lift them up to you. In the name of Jesus, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Nails, spear shall pierce him through the cross. Be born for me, for you, and hail, hail the Word made flesh, the the son of Mary. Chris and Bishop Donald Hying recorded this episode on June 6, 2022, Pentecost Monday, the memorial of the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of the Church. It's also the 78th anniversary of D-Day, the Allied landing in Normandy in 1944, the largest seaborne invasion in history and the beginning of the end of World War II and the liberation of Western Europe. The music for our program comes from Josh and Margot of the Great Space Coaster Band, www.gscoasterband.com. And the image of the dog for our show comes from a window in a Spanish monastery, which the Dominican friars of England, Scotland, and Wales kindly let me take from their website, www.english.op.org. I'm Chris Odinitz. I thank you very much for listening, and I'll talk to you soon. Christ the King whom shepherds God and angels sing.